Welcome to the Bible Questions podcast brought to you by BibleQuestions.org and the Holly Street Church of Christ. This podcast is dedicated to answering your Bible questions from the Bible. My name is Jeff, and along with Brian, we are the hosts of this program. Hello. Thank you for joining Brian and Jeff on the Bible Questions podcast. Happy to have you along. Today, we're going to be considering questions about heaven. And you know, Jeff, I was thinking about this earlier. You know, when you think of all kinds of different biblical terms that we have, there are some that people may not be as familiar with, like, you know, tabernacle, ephod, you know, whatever it might be. But heaven's the opposite. I mean, I would say even for non-religious people, heaven is a very recognizable term, isn't it? Well, recognizable and in a very positive way. I mean, everyone has this uh, concept of heaven as this, you know, wonderful place they want to go to. Now, they may deny the opposite, that there is a hell. But, uh, yeah, the concept of heaven, I mean, even popularized with the media, movies, Hollywood, uh, etc. Yeah, it's a very, very well-known subject. Although, details people may not know <laughs> or, or not uh, understand or appreciate, but... Uh, yeah, certainly the concept as a whole, very popular. Yeah, like everybody knows the term, it seems, or most. And when it comes to questions that are submitted to our website, as a result, you know, there, as you kind of touched on, I mean, there's certainly a lot of diverse beliefs or misunderstandings or things people wonder about with heaven. And so we tend to see that with the, the questions that are submitted. For instance, I put just a couple down here, like, you know, we get frequently questions about, well, what, what does it take to get to heaven? Great question. Or, hey, are there certain sins, and they might list the sin that'll keep me from getting to heaven? Or, what will it be like in heaven? Or, what will we do while we're there? Will we recognize others, like our family, our loved ones, or even pets? And so, you know, some of these questions, Jeff, I think you would agree. I mean, yeah, the Bible says a lot about heaven, no question about it. But there are many things that we are not told. So we just want to be careful that we don't try to speculate, right? True. Well, and a lot of the references to heaven, my opinion, may be couched in terms that we can understand, but might not be fully expressive of that kind of existence. Um, because, you know, I, I'm kind of thinking a little bit about, you know, some of the descriptions in the, in the last part of the book of Revelation that talks about a city and foundations and certain materials used in its construction and its size and its dimensions and et cetera, that, you know, make me wonder, yes, grand and glorious, but is it that physical kind of thing or is there a lot more to it that we really can't even comprehend? Yeah, agreed. And so, you know, our goal, of course, should be let's deal with what we know, what the Bible says that we can understand, certainly, and... Let's try not to speculate, and we have this passage sometimes we'll reference in Deuteronomy chapter 29 and verse 29, where it says, the secret things belong to the Lord our God, but those things which are revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that we may do all the words of this law. So, of course, this law in that case is the old law, but still the principle holds, and that is there are some things that God just chose not to tell us. And we get glimpses from some of the passages, and it makes us wonder, like, wow, you know, we're going to be like the angels? What does that mean? You know, things like that. But one thing we do know, and one passage I'd like to just have us consider before we get into the questions, and that's in 1 Peter chapter 1. So, Jeff, could I get you to read 1 Peter 1, 3 through 5, where it talks about heaven? Okay. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who, according to his abundant mercy, has begotten us again to a living hope the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled and that does not fade away, reserved in heaven for you, or kept by the power of God through faith, for salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Yeah, I really like the description about it being an inheritance that's incorruptible, undefiled, does not fade away. So God has made this promise. Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, first, as we study the scriptures, we find out we also will resurrect either to life or to punishment in hell. And for those who are Christians, this is a promise that should be comforting to us. I like also verse 5, who are kept by the power of God through faith for salvation. So if we believe in the Lord, we're obedient to his will, we can count on the fact that there will be a heaven and that there will be an eternal life. And so... What we want to do today 
is consider a wide range of questions that have been submitted on this subject. And much like we try to do when we have topical question type podcasts, is we try to select some questions that maybe you haven't thought about before. And then others that are familiar, more common that most people think about. So we kind of have a mixture there. So Jeff, before we get started, anything else you want to say about heaven and, and what the Bible teaches us there? No, let's just get into it. All right. First question for you. Mary says first, we are all God's children. Why would a heaven and hell exist if God wanted all his children with him? So that's the first question. Then she goes on to say, some people never learn of baptism or salvation, and they are very good people. God would never forsake them because they do not have knowledge of him. Maybe they were raised within a faith without the Holy Trinity. Would they not end up with God? Is her second question. Right. Uh, And certainly what I would say is, is a somewhat sympathetic question. What I might call a great example of human reasoning. Sounds good to us. Yes, you know, why would God do that? Or why wouldn't God do that? Well, if I was God, you know, this is the way it would be. But the key point is not to let our own feelings and emotions cloud our judgment based on what the scriptures have to say. You know, basically, we need to go back to the scriptures and see what the scriptures say first and then form our views and our opinions and our emotions based on that and not the other way around. For example, Mary writes in, some people never learn of baptism or salvation, and they are very good people. Well, scripturally, that is not true. This quote-unquote concept of very good people. Well, at a very base level, who defines what is good? Who defines what is very good? Us? No. Only our Creator, God, can define what is good. And according to the scriptures, well, uh, we'll we'll let uh, the scriptures speak for themselves. Romans chapter 5, verse 12. Therefore, just as through one man sin entered the world, and death through sin, and thus death spread to all men, because all sinned. Previous uh, couple chapters, Romans chapter 3, verses 9 through 12. What then? Are we better than they? Not at all, for we have previously charged both Jews and Greeks that they are all under sin. As it is written, there is none righteous. No, not one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks after God. They have all turned aside. They have all together become unprofitable. There is none who does good. No, not one. So this concept of very good people, you know, Morally speaking, or you know, reasonably good people, from our perspective, okay. From God's perspective, not true. As one of the members in our local congregation, Charles, you know, sometimes says, everyone has quote unquote a sin problem, right? Uh, having violated God's will. So another person that, or another thing that Mary writes, uh, God wanted or wants all His children with Him. Now, that is true, according to the scriptures. Uh, 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. So, certainly wants all of his kids with him. How? Well, again, back to scriptures. Romans chapter 1, verse 16. For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, to the Jew first, and also for the Greek. So it is conditioned or based on the gospel message, based on believing, accepting, and subsequently obeying that message. That's how God can save. And and finally, to her point, she says, God would never forsake them because they do not have a knowledge of him. Likewise, that is also not true. Luke chapter 12, uh, verses 47 and 48 comes to mind. And that servant who knew his master's will and did not prepare himself or do according to his will shall be beaten with many stripes. But he who did not know yet committed things deserving of stripes shall be beaten with few, few stripes. For everyone to whom much is given from him, much will be required and to whom much has been committed of him, they will ask the more. So this concept of ignorance being an excuse, at least according to Luke chapter 12, 
is not true. God certainly loves all of his, loves creation, loves humanity, does not want them to perish, wants them all to come to repentance and obedience to the gospel. And hence why we have both concepts of both a heaven and a hell. Brian, any thoughts you want to add to that? Yeah, I'd like to add to the last point. You know, we understand that in Genesis chapter 1, verse 27, that God created us in his image and in his likeness, which means he built within us a sense of right and wrong. And we see that with children, you know, even before you have a chance to teach them and they get to an age where they can understand the nuances, if you will, of right and wrong and what it truly means. They know if they hit their sister or something when they're two, that it's not right. So they have a, we all have a sense of right and wrong. The other thing is, you had mentioned Revelation, or excuse me, Romans chapter 1, 16, about the power of the gospel. Well, Romans chapter 1, verse 20 also says, you know, since the creation of the world, his, as in God's, invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. And so all of mankind should look at the universe and the organization of the universe and based on you know how God created us wonder about a supreme being and so we have to bear some of the responsibility to seek the Lord or to reject those principles that he created us with and go our own way and so anyhow I bring that up because you know it does sound like an indictment you know where she's like hey some people will never hear the truth it's like and as you pointed out not true we we can't say that because there are many ways in which we should come to the knowledge of the truth or desire to know about our creator. Good point. All right, so you get a question from Bogani. How many heavens are there? And what's the difference between heaven and paradise? Yeah, and I could see somebody asking this question because the Bible does talk about heavens, plural, and we see that starting in the book of Genesis where there are multiple heavens referenced. So for instance, in Genesis chapter two and verse four, it says, this is the history of the heavens and the earth when they were created and the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. And so from this and other passages, we see that there is more than one heaven and you know, past some of the passages kind of help us to distinguish that there are three different levels of heaven, if you will. So level one, is the atmosphere where the clouds are located. So like when we're outside, you know, we're looking up. That's kind of level one, we might say, according to Genesis chapter 2 and verse 19, it talks about where the birds fly and so forth. According to Matthew chapter 24 and verse 29, we see that there is a higher level where the sun, moon, and stars are located. So we might say that's like level two. And the highest level, the third heaven, is referenced in 2 Corinthians chapter 12 and verse 2, which is God's dwelling place. And once again, Paul talks about the third heaven there. So we really see three different levels, if you will, referenced in the scriptures. Now, as for the difference between paradise and heaven, paradise is part of Hades, which is the realm of the dead, or we might say the holding place for our souls until the day of judgment. And we see that Hades contains what's often called Abraham's bosom or paradise. They're kind of synonymous terms. And some place called torments. In Luke chapter 16, verses 19 through 31, we're told about these two realms of the dead when we are given some information about a rich man who went to the torments. He was a man who was not generous and you know helpful to a beggar named Lazarus. And you know, based on how the rich man lived his life, he was sent to torments. And in verse 23, it says, and being in torments, speaking of the rich man in Hades, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham afar off and Lazarus, that poor beggar, in his bosom. So we clearly see there Abraham's bosom and we see torments. Now, Jesus also referenced Hades when he talked about paradise when he was on the cross. And he said to one of the thieves on the cross in Luke chapter 23 and verse 43, Assuredly, I say to you today, you will be with me in paradise. And so uh, we could look at other passages where it talks about, you know, there was a prophecy that Jesus' soul would not be left in Hades. So when he died, he went to Hades, he came back, he arose, and eventually he went to heaven to sit at the right hand of God. And so all of these passages clearly point to us that Hades is the realm of the dead, where we have paradise and torments. 
And so, you know, to understand the key point here is that we will all wait in Hades unless Jesus returns before we die. So we'll either be in torments or paradise until we stand before the judgment seat of Christ on the day of judgment. And there are passages like Hebrews 9, 27 and 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 10 that teach us this. Jeff? Yep, good point. Yeah, and I think as a side comment, certainly shows the value or the importance of taking all that the Bible says on a given subject, you know, bringing all the verses together to get a composite view, so to speak, uh, on a particular uh, topic. Indeed. Yeah, lots of false doctrines out there. You have to be able to understand the difference. True. Okay, so the next question was anonymous, anonymously submitted. And this person said, I would like to ask for your comment on the topic of the new heaven and the new earth that's referenced in Revelation 21, verse 1. Okay. And as I mentioned at the, at the top of the podcast, some of the language that we see, particularly in, in prophetic works like uh, Revelation, most likely highly figurative, symbolic, trying to convey something that's very difficult for us to understand. And this is one of those. So from passages, let me start off simply. Passages like Second uh, Peter 3, uh, verses 1 through 13, and Revelation 21, verse 1, we understand that the current heavens and the earth will be totally destroyed when the Lord returns. Basically, heavens in that concept, as you mentioned, you know, three heavens, certainly not the heaven where God dwells, but more the material creation, the planet, the atmosphere. I think most believe that, you know, the heavens in this context is referring to the universe, the physical universe uh, as a whole, as well. Now, certainly there are some passages that, will, that do talk about a new heavens, plural, and a new earth. So, you know, our first thought might be, okay, so God's going to destroy this planet and we're going to move to another planet. Or God's going to destroy this universe, and we're going to move to a different universe. Um, there's probably more to it than that. Other passages describe the future dwelling place of the saved, as we've already noted, as being in heaven with God. So, taking this concept of a new heavens and a new earth, along with this concept of being in heaven with God, Altogether, you know, these passages seem to indicate a new existence or dwelling place that await the faithful after the judgment with God in some existence unlike anything that we've kind of experienced. Uh, and of course, these characteristics are really hard in many ways to express in ways that we comprehend. So given the fact that our inheritance is in heaven, given the fact that it talks about being in heaven with God, I would understand that this reference to a new heaven and a new earth, new heavens and a new earth, is not a reference to yet another planet, but to some new existence or reality with God. And in some ways that's reinforced by 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 50, that says, Now this I say, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does corruption inherit incorruption. So part of this new existence in this kingdom of God is a uh, concept of not being corruptible, that our fleshly bodies somehow do not, cannot exist there. So another planet like our planet? No, it's, it's something, something different, most likely a different existence with God in what we would call heaven. So Brian, that's, that's kind of a roundabout way of saying uh, new heavens and new earth most likely is a way of referring to a new existence in heaven, if that makes sense. Yeah, definitely does. And yeah, there's so much false doctrine that's based on whether it's revelation and it's figurative language or Isaiah. And, you know, I'm thinking about like, you know, Mormon teaching of we can all be gods of our own planet, you know, or premillennialism. Jesus is going to come back to this earth and he's going to physically reign as a king on this earth for a thousand years. Once again, taking passages completely out of context, because 2 Peter 3, for instance, tells us the earth and the heavens and everything will be destroyed by fire, and then there will be the judgment. So we couldn't possibly have new planets and Jesus ruling on this earth. So, anyhow. 
Well, and I'll add to your list of uh, notable groups that, that teach this sort of a physical existence. Uh, Jehovah's Witnesses, you know, they, they will teach, yes, uh, a small number of 144,000 exactly will go to heaven to be with God, but all the rest of the saved will, you know, live on a rejuvenated earth, which is not what the scriptures say. And again, it's kind of one of those kind of taking a very physical, literal view of a passage like Revelation 21 that is surrounded by all this figurative, highly symbolic imagery and insisting it has to be exactly literal, which most likely is not the case. Right. All right, Brian, I guess you get the next one from Linda, who indicates she's a member of the Church of Christ. So she writes in, does God hear prayers when we pray that the deceased go to heaven? I'm sure he hears them. However, I guess my question better asked would be, will God send people to heaven that are prayed over after they are dead? Yeah, this is an interesting question. And I also find it interesting that it was submitted by somebody from the Church of Christ. And is it a good example? You know, we were just talking about Mormons and Jehovah's Witnesses. And our goal, just to be clear, is not to slander these other false religions or or to belittle them or anything like that, but just to point out what some of their beliefs are. And so this is just a good example. Here's Linda saying she's a member of the Church of Christ. And she's asking a question that we might expect to get from some other religions, like, for instance, the the Catholic Church and their belief in purgatory, or Mormons, again, the belief of baptism for the dead. So it just goes to show you, hey, all of us can be confused and just wonder. And I kind of sense the way she's asking this question. She's just curious and wonders. And others who have been taught this doctrine by the denomination or the Catholic Church that they're a part of. And so anyhow, uh, it just goes to show you that, hey, all of us can be wrong, if you will, or not understand, more importantly, what the scriptures teach on the subject. So prayers for someone after they are dead cannot change their destiny. And I referenced the Catholic Church. You know, they teach that prayers for the dead can lessen somebody's suffering, but the Bible just doesn't teach this. And in fact, let me just give you a few quotes from their own doctrine to show this is something they believe. So from the Council of Florence in 1439, we have a quote, There is an intermediate state or place called purgatory where the dead go to suffer punishment until they can be purified. That is not in the scriptures at all. Also, the Council of Trent talked about how these sufferings that somebody would go through in purgatory are lessened by prayers and masses. So that was something the Council of Trent proclaimed. We also have Fulton Sheen in in something called the World Book say, These people have not fully made amends for their failings, so must atone for them by suffering before being admitted into heaven. So once again, all of these different doctrines and declarations and beliefs that are in their own stated creeds are just all false. They cannot be supported by Scripture. And so, in fact, the Bible doesn't even teach the principle of purgatory. And instead, it teaches us that once we die, our destiny is fixed. So, for instance, in Hebrews chapter 9 and verse 27, it says, And as it is appointed for men to die once, but after this, the judgment. Uh, We were just talking about in a previous question, the parable of the rich man and Lazarus in Luke chapter 16. And if you read through that section in 19 through 31, you'll see there that, you know, the rich man wanted Lazarus to cross over to kind of give him some relief with water because he was suffering so much, but Abraham made it clear that there's a great gulf between paradise and torments, so nobody can cross over. And later on in that that section of scripture, the rich man also wanted to send someone back to warn his brothers so that they wouldn't come to torments like him. And Abraham said, you know, they can hear the truth themselves from Moses and the prophets. And so what does that teach us? Well, it teaches us that all of us have to respond to the truth and all of us will be judged based on how we've lived our life. And so, you know, no amount of masses or prayers can lessen or change our punishment or our reward for that matter if we're faithful. So two more passages, uh, Romans chapter 2 and verses 5 and 6, where it talks about the righteous judgment of God. And it says, who will render to each one according to his deeds. And then 2 Corinthians 5.10, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ 
that each one may receive the things done in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. So, Jeff, these passages make it clear that we're not going to be able to help people once they die. Their destiny is fixed. Now, now certainly we can express a, uh, a desire that they turn out to be saved. Uh, maybe even I hope that they turn out to be saved. But for asking God, okay, God, I know this guy was, was a rascal, you know, was a sinner, you know, unrepentant in this life. But, you know, can you give him a second chance, you know, in, in Hades, in the afterlife? And, you know, that is contrary to what the scriptures say. You know, while you were talking, I looked up the word you used, uh, gulf, uh, Luke 16. There's a great gulf. Interestingly enough, the same Greek word uh, we bring over into English as chasm. You know, a gaping opening, chasm, gulf, <laughs> at least uh, in the uh, the physical sense, cannot get across. And, of course, that was the point that Abraham was trying to make to the, the rich man. You want you can't go from one side to the other, and you can't go from the other side. You know, can't go back and forth, I guess is what I'm trying to say. Interesting. Yeah, I had never looked up that word. That is interesting. All right. Jeff, for you, Gary asks, will we Christians just spend seven during the tribulation years in heaven after the rapture and then come back to earth with Jesus at the end of the tribulation to establish his kingdom on earth. This kind of falls into that premillennialism realm, doesn't it, that we often get questions. Exactly. And the answer is no. <laughs> I would just throw that out there. Because this is, as you indicated, this is all part of the doctrine of premillennialism, that either at the beginning of the Great Tribulation or halfway into the Tribulation, what is called the rapture will occur, and the saved at that time that are living will like disappear from the earth. You know, the Left Behind series uh, in literature uh, kind of illustrates that. And then at the end of the Great Tribulation, Jesus will come back to the, this world, not in judgment, per se, not to destroy the world, per se, but to set up his physical kingdom on earth, which will last a thousand years, after which there will be great war and destruction of the planet, and then eventually heaven and hell for the lost and the saved. And as we indicated, that's based a lot on a literal interpretation of the book of Revelation. But unfortunately, it's not in keeping with other passages, other plain, less figurative passages in the New Testament. For example, 2,000 years ago, both John the Baptist and Jesus clearly taught their audiences that they needed to repent and believe in the gospel because the kingdom was at hand. Matthew chapter 3, verse 2, Mark chapter 1, verse 15, and others. So it was near. It was like imminent 2,000 years ago. In fact, after Jesus' death, burial, resurrection proclaiming of the gospel, Acts 2, we see that the kingdom was in existence already by the time you get to Colossians chapter 1, verses 13 and 14. And notice the tense of the verb. He has delivered us, has delivered us from the power of darkness and conveyed, conveyed already, conveyed us into the kingdom of his son, of his love, in whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. So right off the get-go, the kingdom already exists. It is not a future thing. Secondly, this, this concept of second coming, day of judgment, other passages clearly teach that there will be one resurrection, not two. Uh, you know, not a resurrection of the saved as part of the rapture, and, and then another resurrection. Nope, the scriptures refer to a single resurrection per John chapter 5, verses 28 through 29. It says, do not marvel at this, for the hour is coming in which all who are in the graves will hear his voice and come forth. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life, those who have done evil to the resurrection of condemnation. Single resurrection, day of judgment. Now, from a believer's perspective, you know, this concept of being caught up is expressed. First Thessalonians chapter 4, verses uh, 13 through 17. Paul writes to the Thessalonians, but I do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning those who have fallen asleep, the euphemism for having died, Christians who've died by that point, lest you sorrow as others who have no hope. 
For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who sleep in Jesus, faithful Christians who have died. Verse 15, for this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout and the voice of an archangel and with the trumpet of God. What's going to happen? The dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And thus we shall always be with the Lord. So that's, you know, from a believer's perspective, what will happen when Christ comes again. From an unbeliever's perspective, we kind of see that in 2 Thessalonians, the next book, 2 Thessalonians, chapter 1, verses 5 through 10. Talks about, you know, the Christians may be counted worthy of the kingdom of God for which you also suffer, since it is a righteous thing with God to repay with tribulation those who trouble you, and to give you who are troubled rest with us. When the Lord Jesus Christ is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, taking vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, these shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power when he comes in that day to be glorified in his saints and to be admired among all those who believe because our testimony among you was believed. So instead of this sequence of things with tribulation and rapture and Jesus' coming and then the thousand-year reign and then the general resurrection and then the day of judgment, based on a literal interpretation of Revelation chapter 21, what we see based on these other scriptures is when Jesus comes back, it's not going to be to set up his kingdom, which already exists. It's going to be in judgment, second coming, judgment day, resurrection, judgment seat of Christ, uh, etc. So if I go all the way back to the question, you know, will we Christians spend seven years in heaven after the rapture and then come back to earth? No. When Jesus comes back, general resurrection of all who have died, and judgment day. And of course, saved off to heaven and unsaved off to hell. Gehenna. Brian? Yeah, it's interesting. You know, we get a lot of questions where this term rapture is used. And I remember, you know, I looked up this term rapture because I'm thinking not only do people submit it or, or state it in questions they submit, but we even see it in songs in our songbook, Rapture, the Rapture. And rapture, the term rapture is not found in our Bibles anywhere. In fact, I searched several translations and I found a couple of obscure what I might call obscure translations. One reference to a, a, a verse in Song of Solomon had nothing to do with the resurrection. One in like Luke, and it was just talking about prophecy. And anyhow, the reason I bring this point up is because as you pointed out, I mean, this is a very popular concept among premillennialists as it relates to this end time event. And if you look up a dictionary definition, you know, it just talks about the transporting of believers to heaven at the second coming of Christ. Okay, well, yeah, there will be some that will go to heaven, but it will only be after judgment. And so, anyhow, I just bring this up because people latch on to some of these terms, and I'm not, you know, condemning them for it. You know, a lot of times they're just repeating what they hear, and they use this term rapture. And then, you know, as you mentioned, they, they take it out of context to mean something totally opposite of what's actually taught in the Bible. So we just have to be careful, I guess, the point. Right. Well, and I think what they may view is they go back to uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 17, where it talks about being caught up in the air, yeah. But you know, the other thing, Brian, I'll, uh, I'll throw out there just for consideration is, you know, anytime there seems to be, you know, at least within the last hundred years, let's say, anytime there is notable political turmoil or churn or a powerful dictator or some unsettled turmoil in the Middle East. A lot of people immediately think, oh, it's a sign of the end times. Oh, it's a sign of the second coming. Oh, we're on the verge of the tribulation. Oh, hey, I wonder, I wonder, is Hitler the Antichrist or is Stalin the Antichrist? Or, you know, I've heard some people accuse, you know, Donald Trump, he's the Antichrist. Or there's some other antichrist is just on the verge and all this stuff is going to happen in the Middle East. And, you know, with the Israelis uh, and the Hamas fighters fighting, oh, it's a sign of the end times, etc. And they're sort of 
taking that premillennial view and you know trying to apply it to you know every single modern event and getting all stressed out. But there's a lot of passages, particularly over in Matthew 25 and some in Matthew 24, that says, you know, when Christ comes back, it's going to be a surprise. You know, as in the days of Noah, it, it's, it's just going to be a surprise. You know, you're not, you're not going to be expecting it. No signs preceding it. In a moment, in a twinkling of an eye, last trump, no time to change, no time to get better, no, no time to get saved. Yeah, and Jesus himself said he didn't even know when that would happen. Only the Father knew. So you're right. It's it's not something that can be predicted based on a certain ruler or signs that we see in the universe or anything like that. Right, or, or an exact countdown chronology, you know, from the beginning of the Antichrist setting up the temple or setting up some agreement with the, the with nation of Israel. Countdown, seven exact years, poof, that's when Christ is coming back. It's like, no, no, no. That, that contradicts plain passages. Of scripture, which again, a small, a small side comment. If, if you got some highly figurative, somewhat uncertain passages, and you have some very plain literal passages, you should let the very plain passages help guide your view of the squishy ones, if I can use that term. Well, and also, it's amazing to me how there have been so many religions that have given firm dates. The Lord's coming back on this date. It's like, well, the scriptures are clear, nobody knows. So why are you predicting a specific date anyhow? And there are reasons why they do it, but hey, all those dates have come and gone and shown they didn't know and they were wrong. <laughs> so yeah, that, That's a good point. And I don't have a quick reference here, but there was a, a website I once found, I think it was in Wikipedia, that talked about date setting for the second coming. And this is not a 20th or 21st century phenomenon. Allegedly, people have been trying to set dates way back when, 2nd, 3rd, 4th century. Uh, you know, 1,000 was supposed to be, since it was a nice round number, supposed to be the time of the second coming. And of course, you know, we, we've seen 19, I think 1914, 1918, if I remember right, 1972, 74, uh, 2012. I mean, it's just dates all over the Alrighty, so moving forward, Stephen writes in, will people from the Old Testament go to heaven? If so, how? And Brian, just quick, I might add to that. We do get a lot of questions related to that based on people thinking, well, wait a minute, if you have to believe in Jesus and all these people lived and died before Jesus came to this earth, how can they go to heaven? So, you know, shed some light on that. Yeah, good question. I agree. It's something I think all of us kind of wonder about, as you just stated, based on what's required for salvation under the law of Christ. But the good news is the Bible answers this question for us. And, and we learn that through the blood of Christ, all faithful men and women were redeemed and will be redeemed, have been redeemed through the blood of Christ. And God's grace was extended to those under the old law. And so let's take a look at Hebrews chapter 9 and verse 15. Here the Hebrew writer says, And for this reason he, speaking of Jesus, is the mediator of the new covenant by means of death, for the redemption of the transgressions under the first covenant, that those who are called may receive the promise of the eternal inheritance. So when these men and women died that we read about, for instance, in like Hebrews 11 and in other places, they were considered righteous before God. But now, under the old law, their sins couldn't be taken away because that was only done through the blood of Christ. In fact, we're told in Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 4 that under that old law, it was, quote, not possible that the blood of bulls and goats could take away sins. So their sins weren't taken away. However, they were redeemed through Christ. And we are told more about this in Hebrews chapter 11, verses 39 and 40, where it says, in all these, people that lived under that old law, having obtained a good testimony through faith, did not receive the promise, God having provided something better for us, that they should not be made perfect apart from us. So through Christ, because they received redemption of their sins, they also are able to share in the promise of eternal life in heaven. And so you know, God made sure that their righteousness was recognized and they also will have that hope and do have that hope of eternal life. Jeff? Good point. Uh, and we even see a glimpse of that, as we mentioned earlier, with Luke chapter uh, 16, in the realm of the departed dead, uh, departed disembodied spirits, uh, Hades, where Abraham you know, is in Hades, in, in comfort. 
know, prior to again the the resurrection. So yes, yes, indeed. It almost sounds contradictory that they were saved by sacrificing animals, even though the sacrifice of animals ultimately cannot take away sins, but because they were faithful and obedient to God based on the law of the time, God was ultimately able to you know save them based on the blood of Jesus. You know, hundreds if not thousands of years later. <laughs> Interest. It's an interesting. Uh, situation yeah and it's it's interesting how it you know and when we talk about that group of faithful christians mentioned in hebrews chapter 11 there's passages that we may not fully understand about them understanding much like moses right that there was something better that there was an eternal inheritance so we can only assume they were told some about it but it, w- it wasn't fully revealed until christ came so anyhow it's always kind of fascinating to read some of those passages about that point well and that's also the the advantage we have from our perspective you know being able to look back across both the old and new covenants both the old and new testament and now we can sort of see i won't quite say the complete picture but you know history looking backwards uh, and i hesitate to say complete picture because there's still stuff out in the future our future again related to second coming is that we have some insight into but you know not fully detailed as well even from our perspective yeah we should consider ourselves very blessed right to have that fully revealed word of god that guides us and lets us look back and see all of these things so yeah completely agree very true yeah you can see all the uh, at least in terms of looking back you can see all the puzzle pieces put together yes exactly right okay so melda asks is the joy in heaven greater than in this world we feel sad and scared thinking that we will all die. Yeah, and I'm a little conflicted on this answer. But I think at the very least, we can say, yes, joy in heaven, greater than in this world, at least based on Revelation 21, verse 4. It gives us the assurance that in that state of existence, God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying, there shall be no more pain. The former things have have passed away. Now, the scriptures say, yes, joy in heaven is greater than joy in this world. Well, no, but I think that's a pretty strong uh, implication based on what I just read from uh, Revelation 21.4. That if there's there's nothing there to cause you pain, crying, sorrow, if it's an existence that is with God, Jesus, angels, saved, there's no sin, there's all this positive thing going on, more joyful. Yeah, I think that's probably a very logical, safe conclusion. Yeah, and I guess, you know, all of us go through difficulties in life, and so we probably think something similar, you know, as it relates to, boy, you know, the Bible tells us about heaven, I can't wait to get there and get away from all of this. Our frame of reference is just this physical earth, and I think in some respects, even with everything the Bible tells us about heaven, we can't really relate to the joy that will be there and singing around the throne and and so we, you know, hey, let's just live our lives so that we can get there. And then, as you pointed out in Revelation, believe and understand it's going to be a much better place where we will want to be versus hell, right? <laughs> the the place of eternal punishment. Right. Well, and to to add to that slightly, you know, sometimes we get the question from people: if I make it to heaven and my wife does not, right? Or if I make it to heaven and my children don't. You know, I know I'll just be, you know, unhappy, devastated, etc. But somehow the existence in heaven trumps or overrides or precludes the fact of being sorrowful or crying, etc. Even if we have loved ones that we've lost. Just thought I'd, you know, throw that out there uh, as well. Because to me that, that speaks somehow of the, the greatness of this reward that it would overshadow any heartache or trauma that we might have experienced in this life or or even in association with our family. Yeah, and you know, we sing a song, this world is not my home, I'm just passing through. And while we certainly, you know, don't want to minimize the importance of family and loved ones, if we're looking at this with the right perspective, then we are, as the Bible says, sojourners and pilgrims. And so let's live our lives in such a way to get to heaven and try to be careful not to become so attached and wrapped up 
in the emotions of this life that we lose sight of the, the life to come if we're faithful. True. Well, I'm sorry. I'm, I'm kind of reminded of the joke about, you know, well, if we make it to heaven, you know, what will we be doing there? Or, or sometimes you hear people make these really weird comments like, oh, I, you know, to the dead, the recently deceased. Oh, I know they're in heaven. Oh, I know they're looking down on us now. Oh, yeah, he's probably riding his Harley in heaven or he's probably enjoying a nice round of golf. Like, hold on. Let's let's not think of heaven strictly in terms of situations and events and activities and hobbies from this world, right? Because it's going to be something totally different. Spiritual, not physical. Sure. Yeah, yeah. Riding your Harley in heaven. Yeah, it's like, well, hold on a second. <laughs> yeah. All right. So uh, back to the questions. Brian, you get the next one from Maurice. According to the book of Mark 16, 19. Lord Jesus was taken up to heaven and sat at the right hand of God. Now, what about the Virgin Mary? I've often heard the Roman Catholic priests say that Mary also was resurrected and taken up to heaven, but I've never come across that in the Bible. Yeah, there's a reason for that, because it's not in the Bible. Yeah, really. It's not in the Bible. Yeah, so this is you know another belief based on Catholic doctrine known as the Assumption of Mary which is what I would call a theory. I don't know how else to put it, but a theory constructed about her going to heaven. And it was based on supposedly finding her empty tomb and therefore assuming she went to heaven. So if you kind of do some research, what you'll find that is in the fifth century, Emperor Maurice established this doctrine and someone by the name of John Samance recorded the following. He says, St. Juvenal, Bishop of Jerusalem at the Council of Chalcedon 451, made known to the Emperor Marcion and to Polsheria, who wished to possess the body of the Mother of God, that Mary died in the presence of all the apostles, but that her tomb, when opened upon the request of St. Thomas, was found empty, wherefrom the apostles concluded that the body was taken up to heaven. Now, this belief was really formalized into the Apostolic Constitution by Pope Pius XII in 1950. And here it says, We pronounce, declare, and define it to be a divinely revealed dogma. And if you're not familiar with that term dogma, it means a principle or set of principles laid down by an authority as incontrovertibly true. So like something you can't deny, right? It's okay. To be a divinely revealed dogma that the Immaculate Mother of God, the ever-Virgin Mary, having completed the course of her earthly life, was assumed body and soul into the heavenly glory. So as we kind of said at the beginning of this, the answer to this question, the Bible doesn't say anything about this. And in fact, you know, when you look at Mary, the mother of Jesus in general, she's barely mentioned in the Bible. And she's not someone that we are told that we should worship or that we should pray to or to assume like Jesus went to heaven. And so even if they found her empty tomb, to not only assume but declare it doctrine that she went to heaven, I would just say is foolish because once again, we've been talking about this realm of Hades where even Jesus, when he died, went. Mary would be there. She's not going directly to heaven because it just doesn't say it anywhere in Scripture. So if it can't be supported in Scripture, we just have to reject it. Jeff? Yeah, Brian, it's, it's interesting that there's a lot of doctrines within Catholicism around Mary that unfortunately almost elevate her to the status of deity. Oh, definitely. Right? I mean, you mentioned praying to Mary. You know, the doctrines like her perpetual virginity, right? That uh, she was immaculately conceived, no original sin, quote unquote, concept of original sin. And so she's sinless, did not have any kids by Joseph, which contradicts the Bible. Yes, and was, you know, resurrected, ascended, can be prayed to. We have statues of her. You know, we have votive candles. Certain aspects of the rosary that are prayed, addressed to Mary, etc. And again, it's like elevator to the status of, of like a goddess. Right. right. Unfortunately. Yeah, and it's sad, but you know, the good news is we can compare any of those doctrines, whether it's Catholic or any other creed, and say, does the Bible teach us? If not, we just have to reject it. And, and that's the bottom line. Bottom line. There you go. 
Next question from David. What does it mean in the scriptures till heaven and earth pass away? And I don't know for sure, but it, he might be referring either to Matthew 5, verse 18, where Jesus says, For assuredly, I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not one jot or tittle marks uh, in the Hebrew alphabet will by no means pass from the law until all is fulfilled, which was Jesus' role. Or it might be from Matthew 24, 35, where it says, Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will by no means pass away. In essence, basically, these are references, as we mentioned earlier in the podcast, to the earth being destroyed in fervent heat. Second Peter chapter 3, uh, verses 3 through 13, kind of describes that situation in very plain, not symbolic language. Let me kind of read through this. It's kind of, well, it's kind of a lengthy reading, but I'll go through it quickly. Uh, Peter's talking about scoffers coming in the last days. Verse 4, where's the promise of his coming? Since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of his creation. For this they willfully forget that by the word of God the heavens were of old, and the earth standing out of water and in the water, by which the world that then existed perished, being flooded with water. Of course, they're referring to the flood of Noah's day, uh, Genesis 6, 7, 8. The heavens and the earth are now preserved by the same word, being reserved for fire until the day of judgment and the perdition of ungodly men. Do not forget this one thing, that with the Lord one day is a thousand years, a thousand years is one day. Or is not slack concerning his promise. Continuing on down to verse 10. But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night. Back to Brian, what we were talking about earlier about the date setters will come as a thief in the night in which the heavens will pass away with a great noise. And the elements will melt with fervent heat. Both the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up. Therefore, since all these things will be dissolved, what manner of persons ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be dissolved, being on fire, and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Nevertheless, we, according to his promise, look for, and here's something we talked about already, new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness falls. So basically, what does it mean in Scripture until heaven and earth pass away? Basically, it means until the earth and the physical creation is destroyed in fire and on the day of judgment. Yeah, that covers it. And, you know, it's interesting how the heavens and the earth passing away really negates a lot of, as we were saying earlier, right? Premillennial doctrine, Jesus is not going to reign on this earth. It's all going away. And it's kind of hard for us to fathom heaven going away, right? Like where the planets are and all of that. But that's what the scriptures say. So we just have to accept it and once again, be in a situation where we go to heaven after all that occurs. So. Well, you know, the other thing that kind of popped into my mind is we get so wrapped up in, in this world uh, and in this life, uh, and, and people spend you know, massive amounts of energy, thought, money, etc. You know, sometimes, uh, you know, their entire lives constructing great buildings or, or putting together something that will... A, a legacy. I'm thinking about the pyramids, for example, right? And, and yet all of the things we do, all the work, all the accomplishments, all the, the, the things we might build or create or et cetera, or, or you know, write liter works of literature and art and et cetera, in the end, poof, it'll all burn up. It'll all burn up. And all that's left are ourselves. Uh, and of course, what we've done, uh, which will serve as the base, basis of uh, judgment on, on the day of judgment. Yeah, it gives us perspective, right? And therefore, what should we be focusing on kind of thing? Yep. Exactly. All right, Brian, I believe we've got yep, one more question to, before we wrap up our podcast for the day. Again, this one comes in from Anonymous. They say, if a person, it's an interesting one. If a person files chapter seven bankruptcy, will they still go to heaven? Yeah, I like it. And there are different kinds of bankruptcies that you can file, but let's just focus on the word bankruptcy. And, you know, once again, if somebody files it, will they go to heaven? Now, if you're not familiar with bankruptcy, you know, once again, there are different types of bankruptcy. But in essence, 
when you file it, you're basically saying, look, I can't pay my debts. So I'd like to have these debts forgiven. And in some cases, you know, depending on what kind of bankruptcy you file, you can have a settlement to pay a portion of what you owe or others you can be completely forgiven, for lack of a better term, of those debts. Well, so I would just say, you know, once again, to answer the question, if somebody files bankruptcy, will they still go to heaven? Well, it depends. So if somebody has what we might say, quote unquote, racked up debt based on irresponsible spending and they reach a point where they cannot pay back what they owe and therefore file bankruptcy as a way to escape the debt, well, they would be sinning. And Romans chapter 6, verse 23 tells us, you know, the wages of sin, any sin, is death. And so certainly sin in general can prevent us from getting to heaven. Now, someone could repent of the sin of, once again, racking up all this debt, but we'd need to ask, well, would it still be genuine repentance if they do not repay the debt they owe? So if you commit yourselves to buying something and you realize that you, you can't pay it back, at least all at once, and you say, you know, I'm sorry, Lord, please forgive me. I shouldn't have done that. Okay, great. That's the right attitude. But once again, does it say, okay, well, I don't have to pay that back because I've been forgiven. Well, we also have scenarios where, you know, some people will incur maybe large bills due to a medical condition. Like think about somebody who has cancer and they have to go through numerous rounds of chemotherapy and radiation or whatever. And they, they have these massive bills that it becomes very difficult for them to pay back. We should ask, well, then does that mean because they can't pay it all back that they shouldn't attempt to? These are just some things we should think about. Now, in Matthew chapter 18, we have Jesus teaching a lesson on forgiveness, and he uses an example of two men who owed debts to someone. And I think we can glean some truth from this. So it's, it goes through verses, uh, Matthew 18, 21 through 35. Let me just kind of hit the highlights because it's a lengthy section, but, but make a note if you want to read through it. Matthew 18, 21 through 35. And once again, you know, Peter came to him and asked about, you know, if somebody sins against me, how often should I forgive him? You know, Jesus said in verse 22, you know, not just once or seven times, but up to 70 times seven, right? So anytime somebody repents, we need to forgive them. Okay. And then Jesus starts to tell him a story. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven is like a king who wanted to settle accounts. And so this king goes to somebody who owes him, according to verse 24, 10,000 talents. Verse 25 says he wasn't able to pay. So the master had the right to have him and his family and, and the possessions that he had sold that his payment might be made. And we see that in verse 25. Verse 26, he begs him, you know, have patience with me. I will pay you all. Verse 27, the master had compassion and say, okay, I'm going to not only release you, but I'm going to forgive this debt, right? So wonderful, kind thing for this master to do. But verse 28 says, now this same person went out to somebody who owed him money and owed him far less. It says 100 denarii, right? Compared to this massive amount he owned his, uh, owed his master. And the servant did the same thing he did to his master, and he fell down at his feet and begged him in verse 29, have patience with me, I will pay you all. But he, he wouldn't do it. And he threw him in prison till he should pay the debt. Now, if you read on, it talks about, you know, his fellow servants saw what he had done, it really saddened them because they saw his master relieved him of the debt, but yet he wouldn't relieve the debt of his own servant. And so, you know, the story ends, if you will, by, you know, that original master when he found out that this guy wasn't willing to forgive his servant his debt, threw him in prison until he could pay originally all that he owed. And so the point Jesus made in verse 35, so my heavenly father also will do to you if each of you from his heart does not forgive his brother. So once again, lesson about forgiveness. But I think we can also glean from this example that Jesus is clearly illustrating that we still need to have this principle of needing to repay debts, and that if we owe somebody a debt, we are only free from those debts if the person to whom it is owed agrees to forgive the debt. Now, Jesus is just stating fact here. He's not saying that this is the lesson, but the point is that we can see here that somebody that was owed debt had the right to get those debts back. And in both cases, both servants said, I will repay you what, you what I owe, showing that they understood they needed to repay those debts. So anyhow, if you look at different kinds of bankruptcy, and as I kind of alluded to earlier, you know, you might have a hospital or other entities who will reduce somebody's bill. If there's like a financial hardship that's preventing them from paying it back, 
But that doesn't mean they forgive the debt. More often than not, they want you to set up like a payment plan and you still need to repay that amount that you owed or the reduced amount that's owed. And so, you know, you even see situations, Jeff, where people with a large debt will make payments until they die and then the balance is taken out of their estate. Or if their estate doesn't have enough money to pay the bill, then they often write it off what we call. But still, there's always that attempt and should be the attempt to repay that debt. So even though, you know, we don't necessarily have the concept of bankruptcy in the first century, I think hopefully we all understand there's still that obligation to pay what you owe. And even if you ask for forgiveness for racking up debt, as we said, we still have an obligation and Christians should always repay their debts. So Jeff, that was a lot. (laughs) Hopefully it all made sense, but I'll let you share any thoughts you have. Oh, you know, about the only thing that comes immediately to my mind, particularly in our modern culture, is the concept of, I'll say, materialism. So I'm going to go down at least one of two paths. So the first path is like materialism. I want the latest and greatest. Spend, spend, spend. And yeah, we can put it on the credit card. Well, okay, that one's maxed out. Okay, let's get another credit card. That one's maxed out. Okay, let's get another credit card, whatever. Sometimes people have this very casual attitude or maybe even greedful, greedy attitude of you know wanting lots of stuff and they can't pay for it right and in a lot of those situations they may say oh you know i can always declare bankruptcy uh, almost like as an excuse and so as you've indicated certainly don't want that right and you know we need to be careful about our debt we need to be careful about making promises to buy things and pay for things and we need to be people of our word uh it's our say what we mean mean what we say if we're going to go into, well, actually, you can avoid, try to avoid going into debt by, you know, saving up your cash and using cash, right? And prudently using debt, credit cards as an example, you know, home mortgages as an example. Got to be careful uh, and not use it, you know, you, like you're indicating bankruptcy as a as a frivolous excuse. At the same time, the other path is, you know, sometimes people get into situations, you know, not of their own doing. Sudden illness, hospitalization, loss of job, they fall on hard times. You know, certainly we've seen that like with the, the Great Depression back in the 1920s, uh, 1930s, etc. And, you know, circumstances beyond their control. And with some allowance, as you say, for, you know, repentance and perhaps forgiveness of, of some debts. But, you know, bottom line is, we, you know, we need to be careful about money. and We need to be try to be as honest, you know, as honest as we can. So there's, there's some uh, additional thoughts to, you know, throw into the mix. Brian, anything else you want to chat about today since we're out of questions and almost out of time? Yeah, I'll just make one final point to what you just mentioned. And I appreciate that point you made because, you know, it's easy to get into this vicious cycle, I would like to call it. Certainly here in America, we have this phrase, keeping up with the Joneses. And so when your neighbors and your friends have that nice house and cars and possessions, it almost compels you to do the same. And to your point, if you don't have the money, well, hey, it's easy for companies to extend you credit through credit cards. And so next thing you know, you have all this debt and it just weighs you down. And I've often told my children, that I think the number one stressor in life is money. And so if you don't manage it properly, it becomes a source of stress. And anyhow, it's just fraught with peril. Like the scriptures say, right? The love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. And boy, is that sure true. Certainly is. Oh, yeah, Brian, we've, we've definitely covered a lot of ground about heaven. You know, certainly is a beautiful, wondrous place. Hard to understand what it all consists of. In some ways, we've kind of just scratched the surface because you know, there are some other topics, you know, we didn't quite get to that people, you know, write into us about, well, uh, will we recognize one another in heaven? You know, you mentioned that at the very beginning, along with, you know, will we have our pets, you know, when, when we get to heaven? Uh, and there's probably some other questions we didn't get to, but hopefully our listeners were given a uh, a good tour, so to speak, about you know heaven and its characteristics and why we would want to go there. Anything else you want to add, Brian, before we wrap it for the day? Uh, nope, I think we're good. All right. So for additional information about heaven, go to our website at biblequestions.org under the topics menu item, as you might suspect, H for heaven to include an article on what will we look like in heaven and another one, will we know each other in heaven, since we didn't get to that on our podcast, but we do have articles at our website. Again, H for heaven, as well as H for hell. You know, those two kind of go together. J for judgment, 
P for premillennialism, since we talked a whole lot about that today, as well as S for second coming. Last reference I'll give you, you know, it, it's a lot to talk about what heaven's going to be and what it's going to be like and what we'll be doing there and will we have our pets, etc. But more importantly, what does it take to get there? I mean, that, that should be our, our main thrust. And for that, we would recommend you go to the topics menu item and right underneath the, at the very top of the list of, of topics in the selection is steps to salvation, which I, we would strongly encourage our listeners to pay special attention to because, you know, heaven may be a wonderful place, but it's going to be meaningless if you don't get to go there. And so, again, reference the material on the website, especially look up the references uh, in scripture compare it with your lives and your uh, your beliefs etc and be willing to make changes when you need to to make it to heaven thank you for listening to this edition of the bible questions podcast we invite you to visit our website biblequestions.org where you can submit a bible question to be answered and you can also search archives where we have answered several hundred bible questions over the years our website also has a host of free bible study material free correspondence courses, as well as sermons and a host of other material. Please stop by and check it out.